Amen. You guys may be seated, and for those of you who are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children there now. For those of you whose kids are staying in the service, just again, they're welcome here. If they get a little fussy, that's okay. You can take them in the lobby, get them calmed down, and please bring them back in. We love having them in the service with us. I'm reading as I do each week through our Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith. It's known in, uh, by some of us as the 1689, the 1677. We've been looking through what the Confession says on the doctrine of sanctification, again summarizing the doctrines of Scripture. And allow me um, to read paragraph 3 to you this morning. It says, in this war, as it relates to those who have been converted, right? Those who have the Spirit of God living in them, but the, the remaining corruptions of sin that are still present in our lives this side of eternity. It says, in this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time. Right? That happens in some believer's life. Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints... Right, those who have been saved by Christ, grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ has had and King has given them in his word. So that is paragraph three as it relates to the doctrine of sanctification. Encouraging news for us. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the gospel of Mark. We are finishing out chapter 11 this morning, chapter 11, and we're going to look specifically at verses 27 through, again, the last verse that you see there, verse 33. So Mark 11, verses 27 through verse 33. John Mark, under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he He wrote these words. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet Indeed. Fascinating, right? So they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for Holy Scripture. We thank you that it has, in fact, been breathed out by your Spirit. We thank you that It has been preserved by your spirit. We thank you that we can come and have confidence, Lord, that we're reading words from you and that those words, according to your spirit, have the power 
to shape us and to mold us, to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, that is what we want. Help us to be conformed more to the image of your son. So exalt Christ to us this morning. Strengthen us, Lord, and help us in turn to glorify you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Both uh, Matthew and Luke, they, they record this confrontation between Jesus and, and these religious leaders. And, and I call it a confrontation because that's the, the tone of Jesus' interaction here in Mark. But reading both Matthew and Luke, and you can see this in Matthew chapter 21 and in Luke chapter 20, uh, they both, in their accounts, they help us to capture this particular mood, this particular tone as well. And, and these religious leaders, they're specifically mentioned, right? It's, it's a, a list of three. We see the chief priests, we see the scribes, and we see the elders, the three kind of groups that are mentioned in our text. And this list of three, it makes up what we know as the Sanhedrin. And if you remember, I mentioned the Sanhedrin a couple of weeks ago in uh, my sermon. And the, uh, the, the, and, and it was th- th- this group that um, were the ones that uh, were in charge of, of overseeing uh, all the things that were going on at the Jewish temple, right? They, they were the ones that were really profiting from all of the, the commerce, and, and they were the ones especially uh, behind uh, what, was, what was going on, again, just in the court of the, the Gentiles, making uh, the court of the Gentiles an inhospitable place for the Gentiles to actually gather there and profit from hearing the reading and the teaching from the scriptures as they were proclaimed. So it's certainly no coincidence that this confrontation happens sometime after Jesus pronounced a judgment on these religious leaders on the Sanhedrin, and, and as he righteously flipped the, the tables and, and again chased out the commerce that was going on in the court of the Gentiles. In fact, if you remember a few verses back, we, we even get a glimpse into the heart posture of these religious leaders. We, we get a glimpse into how they viewed Jesus and his ministry. And this will be no surprise to any of us that have been working through Mark together over the last year, year and a half. But look back at verse 18 with me in Mark chapter 11. It says, and the scribes and chief priests heard it, what was going on in the temple, okay, and sought how they might destroy him, speaking of Jesus, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. Right, so, so you have two of, of, of the, the, the group of three that's mentioned here, right? You see the scribes and the chief priest. And, and it's interesting to me that Mark tacks on at the end of verse 18 that all the people were astonished at the teachings of Jesus. You, you see that comment by Mark several times in his gospel, and it's always connected to the authority of Jesus and to the application of his preaching ministry. It's always connected to his authority and to the application of his preaching ministry. In our text this morning, it opens up with Jesus coming again into Jerusalem, probably from from Bethany again, 
and he's in the temple, and because we, we he's in the, 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 the Jewish temple, and because we have Luke's account of this, we know that Jesus is, uh, at the time of this confrontation, that he's teaching in the Jewish temple. Here's what Luke says in chapter 20, verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days, as he, speaking again of Christ, he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. So Jesus, he's, he's in the Jewish temple, okay? And he's teaching people in the temple. And again, he's also preaching the gospel. And that is an intention. Uh, it, it, Luke is, is, is saying that purposely. He, he's putting, he's phrasing what Jesus is doing in the temple uh, that way for a reason. He, right? he says he, speaking of Jesus, he taught the people in the temple. Okay, So st- stop there for a minute. He taught the people, he was teaching the people in the temple. Now, what was he teaching the people? He was teaching the people the scriptures, right? which, which was what happened at the Jewish temple. Right? And, and what does the text mean when it says scripture? Uh, it means the Old Testament. It means the Old Testament. That's what was being taught in the Jewish temple. Right? The, the New Testament canon had not been written by then. And so, so Jesus, he's, he's in the Jewish temple, and he's teaching from the Old Testament. And you're going to see me fight with this microphone the entire time I'm up here. It's not staying on my ear. It's the consequence of having weird-shaped ears. Um, uh, so he's, he's in the Jewish temple, and he's teaching the Old Testament scriptures. So no, nothing controversial about that, right? Well, Luke, again, intentionally, he adds this detail, and he preached the gospel, and he preached the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? There seems to be a lot of confusion about what the gospel is and broader evangelicalism, right? But the apostle Paul, he, he summarizes it for us well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just the first four verses. I'll read it to you. The Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you're also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it goes. He says, For I delivered to you what was, what was first of all, that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So according to Paul, which again means according to the Holy Spirit because we know that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, right? the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, right? not, not our sufferings, Right? Not, not, be, not for some, uh, uh, because we were being viewed as, as some sort of uh, victims primarily of our transgressions against God. Christ came and he died because we had committed treason against a holy God. Right? So Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again, right? Bodily and eternally, he rose again according to the scriptures. This is... 
This is the, the gospel. And, and I know that I'm not preaching through Luke, which is, is kind of the journey that we're on right now, but it's important for us to see that what Jesus is doing in the temple at the time that he's confronted by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, is that he's taking the Old Testament scripture and he's claiming to be the fulfillment of it. Okay, He's taking the Old Testament scripture and he's claiming to be the fulfillment of it. Right? All of scripture culminates in the person and work of Christ. So Luke, in, in, his, in chapter 20, Luke, by the Spirit of God, he's crisp for us on this very point. Jesus took the scriptures, he took the Old Testament, and he taught that they spoke about him. And we see Jesus do this elsewhere. For instance, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, we see this. So he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, this means he did this all the time. Right? This was normal for Jesus in his first Advent ministry to do this. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to pray, proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on them, and he began to say to them this, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We could go to other places, right? but we, we should have every confidence that Jesus was doing what he always did. Right? He, was, he was taking the scriptures... And he was testifying that he's the fulfillment of the scriptures, that he is the long-awaited-for Messiah that came to redeem his people. And not only did Jesus teach this way, but as we've seen, again, throughout our journey in Mark, Jesus, he performed signs and he performed wonders that demonstrated his authority over everything that he made. Yet, despite his preaching, despite his, his miracles... Despite his authority, these religious leaders despised and rejected him, right? And ironically, another fulfillment of an Isaiah prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. So, so this is the context of the confrontation. This is the context of the confrontation. This is the context of the questions that these religious leaders asked Jesus. And, and this morning, our text teaches us at least two things. There, there's certainly more. The, the text of Scripture uh, is richer than just drawing out a couple of things here. But, but there's at least two lessons for us to note as it related to the encounter that Jesus had with the Sanhedrin, with these religious leaders. And if you're taking notes and kids, you can jot this down. I, I don't have this in your, the handout for this week, but you can write this down. We have a lesson first from the religious leaders. It's this. Motives behind questions matter. Motives behind questions matter. Look at verses 27 to 28. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Again, read, confronted him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? Right, so t two questions there. By what authority are you doing these things? 
right? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Now, again, these things, when the, the religious leaders say that, these things can refer to many things. It could refer to um, the, the, one of the follow-up questions that, that I would have wanted to ask is, what, do you, what things? Specific, you know, specifically, what are you, what are you talking about? But the, the, they could refer to the miracles of Jesus, right? Certainly his judgment in the temple just a few verses earlier that hit these religious leaders in the pocketbook. Again, they were financially gaining from what was going on in the commerce there. It could refer to his making room for the Gentiles at the Jewish temple. Remember, they believed that the Messiah that would come would purge the Gentiles, would get rid of them, right? And it can most certainly refer to his preaching and teaching ministry. Jesus was not ambiguous. Again, he, he taught that he is the Messiah, which means that he's not just man, even though he's truly man, but he is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. Yet you have these questions, right? Questions that seem legitimate on the surface, right? Were, were people not allowed to ask Jesus questions, right? Was Jesus unapproachable? Was he just being mean or inaccessible. Of course, as Christians, we would say no to that, right? Christ, he he took on flesh. He took on humanity so that the holy triune God could be close, right? Could dwell in us, right? His very person and work made God accessible to us. So, So Jesus, he wasn't being mean or unapproachable or inaccessible. Rather, we should see what Jesus saw and what the Holy Spirit of God wants us to see in these passage, which is this, that these questions were a smokescreen. They were a smokescreen. In other words, there was, there was something going on under the surface, right? The, these religious leaders, they were attempting to manipulate Jesus, they, they were attempting to take him someplace in this interrogation that would allow for them to assert their power, that would allow for them to assert their influence, and that would allow them ultimately to control him. Right? These questions, they were designed to discredit his ministry. They were designed to publicly shame him and to turn the opinions of others against him. Again, look back at verse 18 again, Mark 11. Look back there with me quickly. The scribes and the chief priests, again, two of the three groups mentioned here, right? They heard it and they sought how they might destroy him, destroy Jesus, for they feared Jesus because all the people were astonished at his teaching. These religious leaders, they wanted to destroy Jesus, they wanted to destroy Jesus. And, and because we have the completed canon of Scripture, we know that this is literally true, right? We know that's literally true. They wanted to murder him. In fact, murder was so pervasive in their hearts that they had a complete disregard for the law of God. Old Testament Scripture, settled Scripture, they had a disregard for the law of God that they claimed to cherish that said, you can't murder, right? But why didn't they just murder him on the spot? Well, in God's grace, they feared him, right? They, they feared Jesus, but it wasn't the type of fear that a believer has 
for the Lord. It wasn't a reverencing or a respecting, a, a worshipful fear of Christ. Rather, they feared Jesus because, as I pointed out earlier, because they feared him because the people were astonished, right? amazed in awe of his teaching, of his authority, of the application of his preaching. Right? In other words, they recognized to some, to some extent, that doesn't mean that they were all converted, they recognized to some extent the authority of Jesus, and God used that to restrain these religious leaders. So they couldn't just outright murder him, but they could in their pride, they could in their anger, they could in their sin seek to publicly discredit him. This is what lies behind the questions. This is what lies behind the questions. And let's peek behind it even more. These religious leaders who pretended to be close to God They were actually being used by Satan to thwart God's plan to redeem a people to himself through the person and work of Jesus. So not only were these religious leaders seeking to do harm to Jesus, and and I'm not even saying that they connected all the dots here, but they were opposing God, right? They were doing harm to other image bearers in the way in which they tried to discredit Christ and discredit his ministry. There are multiple things that were going on here. Think about it even more. This is why Jesus had a, this, this, this faux trial. Right? This is why Christ was hung on a cross. Right? They, wanted to give, they wanted to give the appearance that they were doing things above board, and they wanted to reassert their dominance. They wanted to reassert their control, and they wanted people to be astonished at their teaching. They wanted people to be astonished at their authority, and they wanted to make Jesus out to be the criminal. And on the surface... At least initially, it seemed to work. Right? Jesus was abandoned by most of the people that initially followed him. Right? He really was despised and rejected. And on the surface, the religious leaders seemed to be successful at turning the tables on Christ. And certainly, our enemy, the devil, thought that to be the case. But our triune God... He accomplished his foreordained plan to redeem his people by taking the wicked actions of man, right, with all the malice in their heart. He took that, and instead of evil ruling the day, our good, sovereign Lord accomplished true, eternal good, right? He used all of this wickedness, all this deceit, and he flipped it upside down, and he did the most good to you and to me. So as we look at these questions, right, because we have the completed canon of Scripture, we see the heart posture of the religious leaders, and we see what they ultimately did to Christ. But again, also because we have the completed canon of Scripture and because the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us, we know what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. We know that we've been redeemed because there's an empty tomb, right? Such glorious news for us. Now, I said there's a lesson here for us, right? And and, and I I said the lesson is that motives matter. I could put it another way too. Appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving, right? These religious leaders who appeared close to God, they were not close to God. Their questions weren't genuine questions. Their questions were a trap, Right? Their motives were not good. And because there's nothing new under the sun, 
we should see that in our lives we may face similar temptations to that of the religious leaders here, right? But we'll also face people like these religious leaders. And we have to remember appearances can be deceiving. We have to remember that motives matter. And because of that, we need God-given discernment and wisdom, right? We need God-given discernment and wisdom. I often hear this in church culture. Well, we don't know their heart. We don't know their heart. And there is some truth in that, right? God is the ultimate judge of the heart, and we should never make hasty assumptions about other people, right? Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. However, we're also called to be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, right? There's no virtue in being manipulated by other people. There's no virtue in being taken advantage of by other people. There's no virtue in being gullible. There's no virtue in being sucked into debates in which the people you're engaging with aren't being forthright or truthful. So motives matter. At times it's difficult to discern motives. Again, we don't want to be hasty. That's a ditch we, we don't want to fall into, but we must use God-given discernment as well, which means that we have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. We have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God using the Word of God in seeking to do good to others. And, and doing good to others at times requires us to do the exact thing that we see Jesus do here. He refuses to answer. He refuses to answer. He refuses to be manipulated. He refuses to be controlled. And in doing so, he exposes the pride and the ugliness of the religious leaders. In refusing to answer, he continues in his humanity to submit to the will of the Father. In refusing to answer, he actually does real good for others, meaning he accomplished our salvation. So that's the first First lesson for us as we're thinking through this text of Scripture together. Secondly, we see a lesson from Jesus, which is this. Answers are for those who come in humility and faith. Right? Answers are for those who come in humility and faith. But Jesus answered, verse 29, said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right. Again, the approach of Jesus, it, it, it further exposes the, the heart posture of these religious leaders. Instead of answering their question, instead of being manipulated by them, he asks them a question that they too refuse to answer. And their non-answer exposes the dishonesty in their hearts. Right? Their non-answer exposes the dishonesty in their hearts. In fact, one commentator even said this about the non-answer of the religious leaders. He said, when the religious leaders confess their inability to judge whether John, John the Baptist is who's being referred to, John the Baptist was from God, did they not also confess their inadequacy to serve as judges of such questions? Was it not of the essence of their calling to lead people to God? How could they do so if they could not tell whether God was at work in a prophet? 
Jesus refused to tell them whence his authority, because by their own words they admitted they lacked insight into recognizing God's prophets when they do appear. Now, let's look at Christ's question some more. His question was, was John the Baptist's ministry, which was signified by his bapti- him baptizing, right? was his ministry, was it from heaven or was it from men? In other words, was John the Baptist, was it a prophet from God or was he some cultic maniac? Right? That, that's the question that's set before these religious leaders. And, and Mark records for us how these religious leaders reason among themselves. Like, and I imagine in my, imagi- in, in my imagination, they kind of look at Christ and they say, can we have a moment, please? And they kind of move off to the side out of earshot of everyone. And they kind of began to think through the political ramifications of whatever answer that they were going to give. And it seemed like a minefield. And that's what they're concerned about there, right? They're driven by, they were driven by fear. Their answer driven by fear. Their answer is driven by all the what ifs, right, that they're thinking through. They feared the the people that were observing this interaction between them and Jesus, right? Apparently, according to the text and elsewhere, John the Baptist was an accepted prophet. And for them to say that he was not a prophet, it could cause people to despise them, right? They could end up losing even more control. They can end up losing even more power than they had already lost, right? Secondly, again, they, they hypothesized the, the what ifs. They, if they said yes, Jesus would ask them, well, why didn't you believe John the Baptist? In other words, why weren't you baptized by John if you say that John's a prophet? Jesus speaking about John the Baptist elsewhere. This is Luke 7. We've gone to Luke a lot this morning, but Luke 7 verses 26 to 30 says, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Jesus talking about John the Baptist. I say to you, and he's more than a prophet. This is he Again, you could picture that he's, he's pointing at John the Baptist, right? This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. All the respectable people, right? Uh, interesting the way the text phrases that, right? Jesus, he, he claimed that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, right? That John the Baptist was the messenger that prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus. And furthermore, he declares that he was the greatest prophet of God. And Jesus, of course, used that to describe how great the kingdom of God is. He says that the least in the kingdom of God are greater than even this greatest of prophets right here. But did you pick up on the end of the passage? Even those sinners who were despised, right? Tax collectors is the example that we're given they received John's baptism. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, right, the more respectable bunch, they rejected what the text said is the will of God. They rejected the will of God by not receiving the baptism. So John was accepted as a prophet by the people. But here is where Christ, this is where he was taking the religious leaders. He He was trying to take them in a certain direction with his line of questioning. And it's worth mentioning that this shows that he was really willing to answer the question if they demonstrated humility and faith, 
as it related to them answering his question. He really would tell them where his authority was derived from. That is the path he was leading them down. And this is the connection. Here is what, here is, here's how we know this. John the Baptist, who was an accepted prophet, even within the first advent of Jesus, he pointed to Jesus as the Christ, right? He pointed to Jesus as the Christ, right? It, it, John chapter 1, verse 29 to 30. The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, right? We're familiar with this passage. Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of of the world. And he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. One commentator says, in short, he had pointed out Christ. John the Baptist had pointed out Christ with the finger and had declared him to be the only son of God. From what source then do the scribes mean that the new authority of Christ should be proved since it had been fully attested by the preaching of John? Right? The answer already plain. Right? They were asking a question that had already clearly been answered. Right? Jesus has authority because he is the eternal God. And the greatest of the prophets attested to that in his ministry. In fact, the ministry of John, the ministry of John the Baptist found its fulfillment. It terminated in Christ. So to say that John the Baptist was a prophet from God, for them to answer the question that way, right, it would mean that you would have to conclude what John the Baptist concluded about Jesus, which is that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But these religious leaders would never do that. They would never do that. They never truly wanted to know. And by, by no, I mean they never wanted to confess in faith where Jesus' authority came from. So they decided to not answer. Or rather, they gave a non-answer, right? We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. A few quotes from us in church history regarding this. Augustine said this about this passage. Fearing a stoning, <clears throat> but fearing more an admission of truth, they answered the truth with a lie reminiscent of Scripture. Quote, injustice has lied within herself. For they said, we know not. And because they had shut themselves up against Christ by asserting they did not know what they knew, the Lord did not open up to them because they did not knock. For it has been said, knock and it'll be open to you. But they not only had not knocked that it might be open, but by their denial, they barricaded the door itself against themselves. And the Lord said to them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Bede, another church father, he says this, it's as if Jesus had said, I will not tell you what I know since you will not confess what you know. In this way, knowledge is hidden from those who wrongly seek it, principally for two reasons. First, when the one who seeks it does not have sufficient capacity to understand what he's seeking for. And second, when through contempt for the truth, which is what we see, contempt for the truth, one is unworthy of having the subject of his inquiry explained to him. So these critics were most justly set aback. They retreated in disgrace. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, said, these elders did not deserve to be taught, for it was plain that they contended not for truth, but for victory. Nor did he need to tell them, for the works he did told them plainly he had authority from God, since no man could do the miracles which he did unless God 
were with him. So this morning, we have two lessons, right? Motives matter. Appearances can be deceiving, right? It's not about giving the appearance of being close to God, which leads us to the second lesson, right? Answers are for those who walk in humility and faith. Augustine, St. Augustine says elsewhere that faith must precede understanding, true understanding, right? <clears throat> which means we have to be humble. We have to be trusting. We have to be a teachable people. And we must, as, as, as I close down this morning, the, the, the question rather that, that is facing us is this, are we close to God or do we just appear close? Right? Are we close to God or do we just appear close? Does the Lord truly know us? Are, are we walking in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or is pride and self-righteousness, is it lurking beneath the surface? I'll close by reading you a parable. We see this in Matthew's account. Right, Matthew, he, he puts this parable after Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders that we looked at this morning. It says this, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. But what do you think? This is Jesus speaking. A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second son and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I'll go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came to you, speaking of the Jewish religious leaders, right, in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent, and you did not believe him. So two lessons for us this morning. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together, God. Help us to appropriately um, evaluate ourselves, Lord, in light of the gospel of grace. And so help us to know ourselves well. Help us to know you better, which helps us to know ourselves better. And Lord, help us to be a people that walk in genuine faith and repentance, Lord. And we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.